This is the Fun Logic Science Show, Dr. Blue Double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Good morning, Canberra. Welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name's Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. We started off with a They Might Be Giants there, and why does the sun shine? Hopefully warming you up on this chilly, chilly Canberra morning. Fantastic to have you here listening to us and joining me in the studio today. It's fantastic to have you here, Rachel. Welcome along. Thanks, Brod. No worries. Uh, Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here for your first time. Uh, yes. yeah, it's all going to run smoothly, I promise. It's going to be great. Oh, good. I hope so. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, we've got a whole lot of science lined up today. We've got a couple of scientists going to chat to us. Dr. Anna Richards talking about her work Um with wildfires in northern Australia and looking at greenhouse gas emissions there. And also Dr Lachlan Gray coming up talking about how HIV can hide out in the brain and how this might affect our treatment of it. But to start with today, I thought we'd talk about something uh, a little bit uh, less intense, uh, the bees. Um, Last time I was on Fuzzy, I was talking about how amazing bees are with their navigational skills and their ability to communicate with each other using their waggle dance, um, telling each other where the food sources are. You know, they're they're pretty cool little black and gold insects that can perform some impressive feats. Uh, But today I want to talk about some new research about the very interesting substances that bees make. Now, I mean, we all know of honey that bees make, and I will get to honey later on, Um, But first, I want to start off with royal jelly. Um, Now, the first time I heard of royal jelly, Rachel, was uh, in a Roald Dahl short story. Have you you read this one? Oh, I think... No, I don't think I do. Which one is this one? Well, this This... one's about a beekeeper and and his wife. um, And the beekeeper, they were very worried about their newborn daughter not eating properly, wasn't taking the mother's milk, wasn't eating, getting very thin. So uh, they started to feed her um, the royal jelly. And uh, she, the daughter started to thrive after this, and he, after he started feeding her this highly nutritious substance. Um, and uh, there is a twist at the ending, as with all good Dahl stories, but I'll uh, leave that one for you to read. Um, but it's interesting, Royal Jelly uh, is a very interesting product, and people have known about it for years, uh, going back to the time of the ancient Egyptians, who used to use it to keep their skin glowing, uh, and it was even used to help preserve the mummies. Now, uh, this royal jelly is something that's made of uh, water, proteins, fatty acids, organic acids, vitamins and minerals. And uh, these substances are mixed with bee milk, which is a a liquid produced by young worker bees. And um, what they do is they actually feed this to all bee larvae as they're they're firstborn. But then um, to make a queen, they specifically pick one or two larvae out and start feeding royal jelly to them continuously. They don't stop. They just keep feeding it. And um, they do this when the reigning queen begins to show signs of old age. You know, they're selecting a successor. And um, the extra helpings that the queen uh, larvae receives uh, helps her develop into a queen because of the the high concentrations of sugar and uh, proteins in the royal jelly. And the results are pretty spectacular. You know, due to the the super nutritious diet, queen bees grow up to one and a half times larger than regular bees and live 40 times longer than normal bees, laying up to 2,000 eggs per day. And it's all just because they're fed this royal jelly as a child. So the the big question here, I guess, is why does the royal jelly help create a queen from the regular bees or or the commoners? Um, And Japanese researcher Masakai Kamakura um, has been looking into this. Now, he uh, got some royal jelly 
And uh, to do his research, he actually stored it at 40 degrees Celsius uh, for about a month and then fed it to larvae. And what he found was that the bees raised on this royal jelly that had been heated uh, developed just into regular worker bees. So what he found was that this heating of the royal jelly uh, broke it down and, and got rid of whatever ingredient it was that was actually helping make these bees into queens. And uh, what he found was that there was a protein in there uh, called royalactin, um, which helped the bees uh, turn into queens. Uh, and so this is, this is the very interesting protein here. Um, so he took this protein and took it even further and started feeding it to houseflies instead. And uh, like the queen bees, these houseflies started developing into bigger, more fertile and uh, longer-living houseflies than the commoner counterparts. So, I mean, the, the question is, you know, why does the royal actin cause this amazing growth? Um, and will it work in humans? Like, if we start using royal jelly, is it going to work for us? <laughs> And was it called royal actin before, or they found before they found it in royal jelly, or after they found it in royal jelly? I, I think it might be after that one. I think the name. Mm, might I think that's a bit of gone. a giveaway. That. <laughs> but yeah, well, well, he looked at um, uh, the way that the royal actin actually works in the insects, uh, Kamakura, and Kamakura found that uh, the royal actin switches on a gene that codes for a protein called EGFR, which is a, an epidermal uh, receptor. And uh, this is found in animals throughout the animal kingdom. Uh, so, and they've clearly shown that it can activate with insects, but whether it can do it in humans has yet to be shown, uh, which uh, is interesting considering the amount of uh, face cream and cosmetics that advertise royal jelly out there already. Um, certainly going to do you some good if you're an insect, but um, nothing proven yet for humans. So that's royal jelly, um, but let's move on to, to honey. Um, Honey is a pretty amazing thing as well. You know, it's one of the few foods that doesn't spoil. Um, and in fact, honey's been found in old Egyptian tombs that hasn't spoiled for over thousands of years, which is pretty impressive. Um, and the ancient Egyptians, they didn't just use honey for eating. Uh, they also used it for medical purposes, spreading it on wounds to help them heal. And a new study from the University of Sydney uh, shows that there may be a, a bit of science in the use of honey to heal wounds, and it may actually be something that's useful. Uh, now, honey is a compound that's hygroscopic, which means it absorbs water from the air, uh, and coupled with its high levels of sugar, this makes honey like a, a dehydrating agent. So moulds and bacteria that land on the honey lose their own moisture to the honey itself, and their growth cycle is then compromised. So this means that not only is spoilage reduced in the honey, but it can also reduce bacteria on the wounds. Now, the study from the University of Sydney looked at using honey to help heal wounds on horse legs. Now, wounds in horses, particularly leg wounds, have long healing periods, uh, but by applying a Manuka honey gel throughout healing, the whole process was 27% faster. Now, according to team leader Dr Andrea Bischofberger, uh, wounds in horses which received no treatment took an average of 64 days to heal, while those with treatment with the Manuka honey gel took 47 days to heal. In the pilot study, they used pure honey, but in a second study, they actually used a water-based Manuka honey gel of 66% honey. And when they applied this for 12 days, they found these wounds healed just as well as those treated with pure honey. So yeah, using a Manuka honey gel means expensive bandages can be avoided, and with faster wound healing times and a bandage-free application... The Manuka honey gel solution is extremely versatile and it's affordable too because, you know, plenty of honey out there that we can use. 
Um, the final study that Dr. Bishop Berger did was actually looking at how manuka honey uh, actually worked to speed up the wound healing. And it does seem to have that antibacterial effect that we were talking about before, uh, and, uh, which is great during the key initial healing phase. But the exact healing mechanism is unclear. However, what they did find was that um, treating wounds with manuka honey led to healthier tissue regrowth and wounds also showed improved blood vessel and skin surface growth compared to control wounds. So when we're talking in terms of people, that could mean you know, better healing of wounds with less scar tissue and that sort of thing. Um, and the results of these studies had led to people you know, uh, looking at it from both uh, an animal and a human perspective. So there's uh, lots of potential for the manuka honey gel to be used across species uh, with similar beneficial effects. So soon we might be, you know, be seeing honey band-aids out there to help us heal. Wouldn't that just be sweet? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you'd have to watch the, the kids, you know. You'd, often kids like to have band-aids just to stick them on themselves to, to, to heal their wounds, but now they might be asking for them so they can start licking them and eating them instead. You don't know. <laughs> you knew honey was too good just to be on toast. Yeah, that's right, that's right. It's got so many other things we can use it for. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM 2XX Community Radio. And yes, I think we're coming up to an interview today with Dr Anna Richards talking about the bushfires in, um, up in Northern Territory. She's, got, she's doing a lot of research up there on grass fires and uh, the savannah burning, the grass fires are called up there. And we're going to be looking at uh, the soil composition in these bushfires and how the bushfires affect the soil composition and what that means for our carbon emissions overall. Uh, yes, so I think we're pulling up Anna now on the phone. Uh, Anna, are you there? Um, yeah, hello, Rachel. Hello, Anna, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. Well, it's really good to have you here on the show. Uh, so I was just wondering, I'll probably throw a general question out to begin with. Uh, what led you into this research and what exactly are you doing up there in the much warmer area of Australia? Um, okay, so, so three years ago I, I um, moved to Darwin to start up a position with CSIRO um, based there as a plant ecologist. And uh, what I've been studying is how fires up here in the Northern Territory uh, affect carbon storage in the soils um, because we know that fires up here contribute substantially to Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, depending on the fire season, it can be, be approximately 3% of Australia's annual greenhouse gas emissions. But we don't know how these fires affect carbon stores in our landscape. And so that was my, uh, the aim of my work up here. Oh, wow, so 3%, that's quite a lot. So probably a bit of a good area to be looking at for this kind of thing. Um, so when you say carbon stored in the soil, what do you mean exactly by the carbon? Are we talking about carbon dioxide, like gas stored in the soil, or uh, where does this carbon come from? Okay, so um, we are talking about carbon dioxide. So uh, mostly carbon dioxide is taken up by plants during growth, and that's converted into carbon compounds, which make up leaves and uh, twigs and grass. And they eventually die and fall on the surface and you see that as leaf litter or, or as roots in the soil. And eventually that gets uh, broken down by microorganisms and uh, by soil um, animals, broken down and, and that carbon can enter the soil and it can sit in the soil for a long period of time. Um, some of that carbon is, is broken down quite quickly and released back to the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, whereas other types of carbon, such as charcoal from fires, can sit in the soil for long periods of time. And essentially, um, by storing the carbon in the soil, we prevent it from being in the atmosphere, and, and we all know that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is one of the main gases that causes climate change. Oh, okay. So uh, when the bushfire comes through, it releases all this smoke, 
and it's also releasing some of the carbon that's been stored in the ground. So what are you hoping, what is your research shows, like, what have, sorry, what has your research shown and how are we going to prevent this carbon being released into the atmosphere that once it's stored in the soil? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, what people have known for a long time is that the smoke from fires um, produces greenhouse gases. And what we've found is that if you burn less frequently, you produce less of that smoke, which is less greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, but you also end up storing more carbon in the soil. And this is because um, fires alter the chemical composition of the soil and also the productivity of the vegetation. Um, so by not burning or by burning less frequently, um, and what we've suggested is that currently uh, wildfires across northern Australia occur about uh, once every two to three years, and we've found that if we reduce the frequency of those fires uh, to one fire every four to six years, uh, we'd store a lot of carbon in the soil. And we found that the amount of carbon that you would store in the soil is about four times more than the amount that goes off, um, uh, it, it, the equivalent amount that goes off in smoke from the fires. Um, so it's a, it's a very important pool and something we didn't know about until now. And I'm just curious as to how that works because, I mean, in, in my head, if we have a fire every four years rather than every two, we're just going to build up twice as much carbon sitting in there in the soil and then when the fire comes through, it all gets released and so we get a big big spike. But obviously there's something different going on there in the storage. Yeah, that, that's true. So um, if you don't burn as often, there's more chance for decomposition to occur. And so once the carbon's in the soil, it actually doesn't get burnt by the fire. It can stay trapped in there. You also get, obviously, when you have decomposition, some of the, um, the carbon and the compounds in that material get released back into the atmosphere. But uh, science, other scientists have studied the rate of release of gases such as methane and carbon dioxide from decomposition. And it's a lot lower than the rate of release when you have a fire. That's awesome. So um, how are we going to reduce the fires to one every, uh, you know, four to six years? How are we going to manage that? Okay, so there's already programs that have been quite successful that have been rolled out across northern Australia. Uh, and these programs, they're termed fire abatement programs. And what they do is essentially um, employ Indigenous rangers, and generally in uh, Aboriginal-owned lands where there's uh, large Indigenous communities. Indigenous rangers... Um, are employed to go back into country and burn uh, early in the dry season. So our early dry season is around now, so in June, when temperatures are a lot cooler. The fires are very small. They sort of trickle down in the grassy layer under the, under the trees. And essentially these form a series of fire breaks. Uh, so um, these rangers are very skilled at managing fire and they uh, produce these fires across large areas of landscape, mostly by um, lighting them from helicopters. And then Sorry, these... they, they light them from helicopters? That's right. <laughs> how do they just get down really low and drop a match, or how does this work? Most of the areas that they're managing are very, very large, and they're very inaccessible. There's no roads there. Um, and so helicopters are probably one of the only tools that can be used in these landscapes to really effectively um, manage the landscape on such a, a large scale. And it works quite well. Um, so an incendiary is dropped from the helicopter and this starts a small fire, which can then be tracked using GIS. Um, sorry, for tracked on a computer using signals from satellites. And, um, and the extent of that fire can be mapped. And then it, it, we can... Uh, they can use that information to then plan uh, further fire breaks throughout the landscape. And what's um, being shown is these programs reduce 
uh, the frequency and also the intensity of fires. When we get fires late in our dry season around September, the weather's very hot and the fires are very large, they're very destructive and they cover huge areas of country. And so if the forest hasn't had this very active management early in the dry season, sorry, the savannah hasn't been actively managed earlier in the dry season, then these very large fires can come through and destroy hundreds of hectares of, of savannah um, and release lots of greenhouse gases. They also um, reduce some biodiversity and um, other, uh, uh, reduce the amount of carbon in the soil as well. Oh, okay. So if we had too many fires, we'd reduce biodiversity. I've also heard that if we don't have fires in our landscape, will again reduce the biodiversity as well. Um, is that true? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's true. So fire is a natural part of the savannah. It's, um, the savannas have been burnt for thousands of years uh, under active um, fire management by Indigenous people um, and fire is important for the regeneration of plants, for maintaining appropriate habitat for animals. Uh, but unfortunately in, in recent times, so in the last 150 to 100 years, the fires in northern Australia have become very frequent because we've essentially got large areas of, of savannah that have, do not, no longer have uh, fire management where these early dry season fires are carefully lit across the country to reduce the extent of these um, very large destructive fires. And because of that, we have seen a dramatic decline in uh, biodiversity across northern Australia um, that's linked to fires and other factors as well. Okay, so slowly with all these management programs, we're going to get a good, healthy environment as soon as possible. And so getting back to your research and the soil, the carbon trapped in the soil, are you implying that um, with um, the management programs are also in place and like the, as you said, the carbon abatement program, does your research show that there's actually been more work's been done to reduce carbon in the atmosphere than was previously thought? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Rachel. So um, previously these programs... Um could show the, that they saved emissions from the smoke in these fires and our research is showing that they're actually saving four times as much as previously thought because by reducing the fire frequency through these fire abatement programs they're storing a lot of carbon in the soil. So in, a, in effect if you like uh, they could claim a lot more, um, these programs could claim that they are um, being more uh, beneficial for um, reducing uh, greenhouse gases and, and ameliorating the effect of climate change than um, what they have been um, uh, given credit for in the past. It's always good to know you're doing a better job than you actually thought. That's right. <laughs> well, that's excellent. So how, did, how do you measure the carbon in the soil? How do you do that? Oh, it's, it's really quite easy, um, but it's fairly expensive, unfortunately. Um, so basically take a, a sample of soil and that's... Um, then dried and, and ground and uh, combusted in a high-temperature oven of around 3,000 degrees Celsius, and all the carbon in the soil is converted to a gas carbon dioxide, which can then be measured in an infrared gas analyzer. Oh, excellent. So where do you take your research from here now? Where's, where's this going to go to? Okay, so uh, at the moment this research has been uh, focusing mostly using uh, small experiments near Darwin uh, that we've, where we have um, actively controlled fire in different intervals and also using computer models. So the next step would be to extend our research to uh, other areas where we've got new fire experiments starting. One of those is on the Tiwi Islands. Uh, there's a, a fire experiment in a partnership with um, the Tiwi Land Council, CSIRO and Tiwi Plantations. And this is looking at a different fire frequencies on the Tiwi Islands, which is a lot wetter than Darwin, and seeing what appropriate fire frequency, what 
what the appropriate fire frequency would be for storing carbon in the landscape as well as reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, excellent. How long would this research take? Um, obviously, ecology is never going to be a quick process, so how long is a research like this going to take you? Um, yeah, you're correct, Rachel. Unfortunately, it's not a fast process, and particularly when you're dealing with carbon in the soil, it can um, some carbon stays in the soil for hundreds and thousands of years, and so to detect a, a change in the carbon is very difficult. Um, but we've been piloting some techniques that can be used as a, um, a faster detection method, um, so we'll be trying those out. But hopefully in the next few years, um, we'd at least have some idea of of what's happening to carbon in different rainfall zones in the soil under different fire frequencies up in northern Australia. Oh, excellent. Thank you very much. So I think that's all about we've got time for, and I'm hoping some of our listeners can see just how exciting the world of um, fire management and fire research really is in our country. So thank you so much for being on the show, Anna. Always good to talk to you. No problem. Thank you, Rachel. Anna Richards, a CSIRO ecologist up in the Northern Territory, talking about how wildfire control can uh, help us lower greenhouse gas emissions. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. And uh, it's time for another interview. Yes, and uh, I just got a demonstration of the waggle dance that the bees do just then as well. So <laughs> if you're seeing Broad anywhere in town, I highly recommend he do the waggle dance for you. Um, yeah, so here we're talking to Dr Lachlan Gray, who's been looking at HIV and the link between HIV and dementia and dementia patients. So, um, Lachlan, I was just wondering, how many people with HIV develop dementia? Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, no worries. Um, so HIV dementia affects approximately five, one in five individuals who contract HIV. So oh, it's yeah. about yeah, 20% of individuals are at risk of developing dementia, which is due to the virus. Oh, wow. So that's quite a high rate. Yeah, one in five. Um, so what actually is happening? What's the process that's going on here? Um, so the virus gets into the brain quite early after initial infection, um, but we're, we're trying to understand what it is about those patients that get dementia. Which um, So we're, try, we're studying their virus and trying to see what it is about their virus which results in them getting dementia, and we've found some interesting findings when we've been looking at these patients. Okay, so... Uh, yeah, so HIV yeah is a virus. What's what is so scary about a virus as compared to like um, a bacterial or a disease kind of thing? What's the what makes viruses different? Um, so viruses can't exist um, outside of their host, so they need a host in order to replicate. So unlike bacteria, which can normally grow sort of independently as long as they have some sort of um, substrate or growth medium they can grow on. Viruses, as soon as they sort of exit the body, um, they only have a very short half-life and die quite quickly unless they find a new host to replicate in. Oh, okay. Sounds a bit like those horror movies I see on the weekend. <laughs> um, so will your, um, will your research benefit people with HIV? Where is this going to go? So what we found was that um, when we analysed viruses that we um, got out of the brains of people who had dementia, we found that they had an ability to hide out in the cells within the brain. Um, and we think this might be an advantage for the virus because if it gets in there and hides, then it can avoid the immune system, which is designed to detect infected cells and, and clear them from the body. And also the antiretroviral drugs that we use to treat viral infection. Um, if the virus isn't producing any viral proteins, 
you won't be able to see the virus, so those cells will sort of persist and um, sort of be, be hidden from the from the um, the drugs and also the immune system. Is that because the brain's sort of like protected in our body, like it's sort of cut off from other things, so it's it's not supposed to get those diseases, and and so the drugs can't get up there. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. So the brain um, doesn't have it. There is this um, barrier between the blood and the brain called the blood-brain barrier, and that's tightly regulated what actually crosses over into the brain. So um, it is sort of segregated from the rest of the body, and it's, I guess, kind of like a barrier to prevent those things from happening. Um, but the virus still can um, avoid that and get into the brain. So we think, um, and also the drugs that we use to treat HIV infection, again, they're sort of, some of them are excluded from the brain. So that causes problems if you're trying to treat brain infection. The drugs that you're giving the patients, while they're good in the blood, they won't be able to get into the brain as effectively. Okay, so does that mean we... Are we able to develop some sort of drug that can jump into the brain? Is there anything that's currently used for dementia that could help us out? Yeah, there are some drugs. Well, I don't know if there's any drugs for dementia, but there are drugs that they use to treat seizures. Um, and, one, and one of these drugs, uh, valproic acid, um, gets into the brain really, really effectively. Um, and there's current work with some collaborators of ours, which is ongoing, which is looking at using this drug to try and act as a way to flush out the virus which is hiding in these cells. It'll activate the cells which have the virus hiding within them. And then once you activate that virus, the drugs, some of the drugs that do get into the brain effectively should be able to block it from uh, replicating in any further cells. And also the immune system should be able to see the infected cells once you basically expose where they're hidden. Ooh, so this is all sounding promising. Is there How long are we until we see something clinical for treating you know, HIV-caused dementia? Yeah, okay. So the valproic acid work is um, very preliminary and uh, we're just starting off with some early phase clinical trials now just in a few small subset of patients. And if those results look promising, then obviously we'll go to further and bigger studies later on. Um, so it'll be at least you know five, ten years before we've got something available in the clinic to give to patients, which should prevent or lessen their, their risk factor of getting um, dementia. Oh, excellent. So so we're on a way for a cure for HIV, does this mean? Um, is there any yeah, chance definitely of these, like So I guess with the virus hiding out in the cells, it is a way for it to sort of exist and um, persist and stay in the body. So using these strategies, uh, people are talking about using this approach to eradicate or cure HIV from um, these cells, which is sort of hiding and acting as a, as a viral reservoir or a vi- viral pool which doesn't get killed off or destroyed by the drugs or the immune system. So I guess this approach will also have applications in terms of eradication and cure strategies to eliminate HIV. Oh, excellent. Yeah, because we definitely look forward to something like that. So, But what made you interested in looking at HIV and what led you down this path of HIV and dementia? Yeah, interesting question. So I was always sort of, you know, interested in um, viruses, you know, watching movies like Outbreak and seeing these really <laughs> pathogenic things that can go in and wipe out whole villages of people and then disappear again. And also the fact that something so minutely small could ultimately bring about our demise and our downfall. So I wanted to understand, like, how viruses work and then hopefully use that information to um, improve health outcomes for people who get infected by 
viruses and diseases. So I did a Bachelor of Science at Melbourne University um, specialising in virology or the study of viruses. Um, and then I did an honours project, which is basically in the lab for a full year, working on a project hands-on. Um, and then I just sort of continued along that path, working as an RA. I then did my PhD, which I've only recently just finished, and I'm now a postdoctoral researcher at Monash University and the Werner Institute. Oh, excellent. That sounds exciting. Sounds like you love your job too. I'm a little bit jealous. It's, so- it's very stimulating, so you're always learning new things and, um, you know, getting to go to conferences and present your work and travel to places you haven't been to before and meet new and interesting people. So, yeah, I enjoy it. So is the travel really a big part of PhD workshops and things? I've heard rumours. Yeah, I, I would say it would be because um, it, it really depends on your lab too, but the, our lab head saw it as part of the job basically. You need to travel, you need to network, you need to get your, your work out there, you need to hear about what other people are doing sort of firsthand as opposed to just reading a manuscript or a journal article. So, um, yeah, at least once a year on average you probably do an international um, conference um, and then, you know, one or two national conferences around Australia. So that's sort of on average. So, yeah, I think it's a fairly big component. Oh, excellent. I better get studying a bit harder then. <laughs> um, yeah, and when you say getting your work out there and promoted, I know uh, your work was promoted through um, the organisation of Fresh Science. Can you tell us a bit about what this Fresh Science is that I know happened down in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, so Fresh Science was a initiative for early career researchers like myself to um, submit an application based on their research or their finding um, and then get handpicked from around Australia. We got shortlisted from I think around 80 applicants down to 16. And then they provided us with media training um, from the different arms of media, so radio, um, TV and newspapers. Uh, we also had presentation training, so practicing our presentations and targeting it to specific audiences. Uh, we then got to do fun things like have a night science at the pub where we had to go along and talk about our research for less than a minute while I was holding a sparkler before it ran out and then also convert our science into a limerick, a haiku or a poem, Ooh. a bit challenging. You know you <laughs> but, shouldn't um, have told us that. Uh, do you remember your limerick at all? <laughs> no, it was quite a long one. I have to have a print off of it to read it to you, so unfortunately, no. But um, it is up on the Fresh Science website. If you wanted to have a look, I'm pretty sure they're all on there. Oh, we might have to do that, I think. Um, and then we um, attended both Regional Victoria and the Melbourne Museum giving presentations to Year 8, 9 and 10 students in about three to five minutes in lay terms and just having a chat to them about our science and just getting them interested in science and trying to encourage them to pursue science at school. Fantastic. And, yeah, I heard you guys all did really well this year. Um, So, yeah, obviously, too rightly, um, some promise was seen in your research and the importance of your research was seen that let you get into fresh science. Um, Was there anything else you wanted to say about the possibilities of your research or any, you know, fascinating bits that, you know, really get you hooked on this story? Um, I think um, apart from... um, Understanding more about the virus and how it causes the dementia, I think we might be able to translate some of our findings into dementia in general. So the mechanism of how um, you get dementia is similar between, say, Alzheimer's and HIV dementia. It's just the cause is different between the two. So we're trying to target the virus, obviously, in HIV dementia because it's the cause. But if we find out 
some sort of more generalised um, mechanisms for dementia, they may be translatable into other dementias and help people in other areas. So, you know, it's nice to know that while your work is looking at HIV, it could have broader implications in other um, diseases. So, yeah. Yeah, it's so good how, you know, just your work and your just your lab can lead to so much other research all over in all different areas and sections. So, excellent. Thank you so much for talking to us. It's uh, really promising work, and we look forward to reading your papers soon and trying to find this limerick. Apparently, it's not quite up on the website yet, but uh, <laughs> we'll see what we can do. So, I think it's up on the Monash website. So we try and <laughs> well, we might be reciting that later on, I feel. <laughs> so, thank you so much for talking to us, Lachlan. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, no worries. Pleasure having you. And that was Dr Lachlan Gray from Monash University talking about how HIV can hide out in the brain and cause dementia and some of his research that's looking to change that. Uh, Both our interviewees today actually came from Fresh Science and if you want to find out more about Fresh Science and what happened, check out their website, freshscience.org.au. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra. And uh, if you've just tuned in, we were just talking to uh, Dr. Lachlan Gloray, who was talking about uh, HIV and uh, dementia and the link between those two. And he did, in fact, write a poem for the event Fresh Science, Science in the Pub, that was held down in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. And they had to write a poem, a limerick or a haiku in the 10 or 15 minutes that they were given. And we've searched and we've found his uh, poem and broadened his beautiful radio voice. We'll now recite that for you. HIV is tricky, you see. Once inside, it hides from me. It enters the brain and looks around, finds a cell and settles down. The virus hides up top, you see, avoiding my immune cells and drugs easily. Now it plots my demise and replication is on the rise. I start to feel strange, vague and slow. So I visit the doc to see what's the go. He runs a few tests and finally concludes, I've got dementia, what a blow! But it's not all doom and gloom, for scientists have found the key to how HIV hides out in me. New drugs and therapies they plan to make to prevent the infection in its wake. Oh, very good. Stephen Fry, look out. I think we've got a new voice artist on the rise. Um, So yeah, that was the poem that was written in 10 minutes by Dr Lachlan Gray to explain the work that he does. Yeah, pretty impressive effort for 10 minutes, I reckon. Yeah, That's not a, too bad at all. We should try and uh, summarise more science in poetry, I reckon. Uh, after you, bro. Yeah. All right, well, look, I'm going to read this story, and if you can make a poem from it, I'll be highly impressed. <laughs> all right, all right, give me a moment. <laughs> okay, so this this story comes out of um, Paris, actually, and uh, looking at uh, crows. Now, if you're a regular fuzzy listener, you'll know that crows are pretty uh, clever creatures, and... Um, They can uh, count. They're quite good at counting and recognising various things. But this study shows that crows actually never forget a face. Um, This study was done um, through uh, US University, actually, the University of Washington, um, to see whether crows would recall a face. And it's it's quite an interesting experiment because what the researchers did is they actually donned rubber masks Uh, before trapping, banding, and releasing seven crows. And they had a specific rubber mask. There was a dangerous or a neutral one. Now, the dangerous one was that of a caveman, and the neutral one was that of former US President 
Dick Cheney. Um, <laughs> so that was their choice. Oh, and uh, Interesting. Yeah, and so they, they donned these rubber masks. And so obviously the caveman one is a bit of a, a, a dangerous mask and the Dick Cheney one is a neutral mask. And then after this, they uh, proceeded to walk around the birds. And uh, when they walked around wearing the caveman mask... Uh, the birds gave a collective response to a threat, which meant they cawed, they screeched, they angrily flapped their wings and they flicked their tail to warn of the danger. And this is a behaviour called scolding in the, the crows. Um, but when they wore the Dick Cheney mask, there was no response. So interestingly, uh, they uh, did this again uh, because they thought this was an interesting result for the first experiment. So they went out to four other sites beyond the university. Uh, this time they used different masks made in latex by a mask maker. And uh, the faces were more ordinary looking this time rather than the sort of cartoonified ones, uh, either male or female, Asian or Caucasian. And 41 birds were caught and banded. And as time passed, um, the number of birds scolding the dangerous face did not decline. More interestingly, it actually increased. What was happening, uh, they think, was that um, some of the angry birds that were scolding the people walking past were actually the offspring of those ones who abandoned. So what's happening is the, the birds that were captured and got scared by this face were then passing this on to their children. And their children were then getting scared by this face as well. So it's a really interesting idea um, that facial recognition is essential for crows. Um, you know, and I mean, it is a useful thing for their, their everyday lives because, you know, crows can recognise that some humans will uh, put out food for them while others might shoot them. And, and so there's that difference. And so by recognising their faces, they're actually increasing their uh, ability to survive. So it's pretty amazing stuff uh, coming out there and uh, very interesting. So, you know, we can't just dismiss birds as a... Mm. As silly as we think. And uh, Rachel, to... you've thrown your pen away. Oh, yeah. Does, does that mean you've got a poem for I us? may have a or... slight poem from this, this uh. story. Um, uh, oh, how embarrassing. All right, so the poem goes, The crow can see the danger in me. The birds squawk and squeak. They recognise my cheek. Ah, very good. I like it. It's, it was touch and go there that's, for a while. No, that's impressive for the amount of time you had to do that. That was pretty cool. Didn't even have my rhyming dictionary with me. <laughs> All right. Well, we're almost coming to the end of today's show, um, but uh, we thought we might finish off with just a bit of This Day in Science. Today is Sunday the 3rd of July, and on This Day in Science, we've had a few interesting things happen. Back in uh, 1987, British millionaire Richard Branson and Per Lindstrand became the first to cross the Atlantic by hot air balloon uh, in the balloon named the Virgin Atlantic Flyer. They actually had to jump into the sea as the craft went down off the Scottish coast. So I don't know technically whether they did cross the Atlantic, but they got pretty close. And they had a cold, refreshing dip at the end. That's right. Well, they travelled 4,600 kilometres from Sugarloaf Mountain in Maine uh, over 33 hours, and that was actually a record at the time for hot air ballooning. Uh, but... Uh, three years later, they actually crossed the Pacific in another balloon uh, from Japan to Arctic Canada, and this time uh, it was much, much further, at ten, over 10,000 kilometres, with speeds of up to 400 kilometres an hour. Oh, wow. Pretty huge stuff, yeah. And speaking of fast things, um, in 1938, on this day, uh, the Mallard train was documented as the world's fastest steam locomotive, travelling at 202 kilometres per hour uh, on the Northeastern Railway in England. 
Pretty impressive stuff, and it was hauling six coaches at the time and a dynamometer car recording the speed. Um, the Mallard was designed as a streamlined express locomotive with an aerodynamic body. And, I mean, considering that's, what, 70 years ago now, that speed's quite fast because now Japanese bullet trains, you know, they generally only reach speeds of up to 300 kilometres an hour. Yeah, and I can't even get to Sydney at a speed of 100 kilometres an hour. No, that's right. It's, it's a pretty fast train back in the day. A couple more interesting discoveries on this day. In 1929, uh, foam rubber was developed at the Dunlop Latex Development Laboratory in Birmingham. Uh, British scientist E.A. Murphy whipped up the first batch using an ordinary kitchen mixer to froth natural latex rubber. Now, his colleagues were actually unimpressed at the time until they sat on it. And then within five years, it was everywhere, on motorcycle seats, London buses, and in the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, and eventually in mattresses too. So the very comfortable foam rubber uh, discovered. And also on this day in 1886, Carl Benz drove the first automobile in the world in Mannheim, Germany, which had a, a very fast top speed of uh, 16 kilometres an oh, hour. Wind whistling through the air. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So there we are. All right, well, I hope you've enjoyed the science on the radio today at Fuzzy Logic. Uh, we're going to be back here next Sunday, as per usual. But if you are hanging out for a bit more science this week, there's a few events going on around Canberra. Yeah, there are. And so we've got this Friday, the 8th of July, the annual Jack Cusack lecture will be delivered at CSIRO Discovery. And so this year's lecture will be delivered, um, will be delivered by CSIRO researcher Dr Cass Hunter and is titled Change, The Next Step is Ours. Uh, Dr. Hunter will be talking about her journey, outlining the steps of personal change and growth that uh, achieve her desired goals. And so that's this Friday, 11 a.m. at CSIRO Discovery. And for more details, uh, visit csiro.au slash events. So it's csiro.au slash forward slash events. And if you're interested in astronomy, head along to the ANU this Tuesday for a public lecture entitled probing the warped side of the universe with gravitational waves from the Big Bang to black holes. So there's lots of possibility in there. That sounds amazing. Uh, this lecture will be delivered by Professor Kip Thorne, who is the Feynman Professor of Theoretical Physics and the, at the Californian Institute of Technology. Uh, Professor Thorne will be talking about the warped side of our universe, looking at objects and phenomena made largely from warped space and warped time rather than from matter. He will also discuss ways of observing this warped side and how it could be strengthened by the addition of gravitational inferometer in the Southern Hemisphere, ideally in Australia. So this lecture is at the Australian National University in the Manning Clark Centre Theatre 1 at 6.30pm on Tuesday. And so for more details, check out events.anu.edu.au. Thanks, Rachel. No worries. Well, that wraps up another Fuzzy Logic episode for this Sunday. Uh, if you want more Fuzzy, check out our podcast, Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com or jump onto iTunes and type in Fuzzy Logic and you can find our podcasts there. You can also find us on Facebook, like us, and you'll be able to see all the updates of Fuzzy Logic as they come through throughout the week. But uh, thanks very much for joining me today, Rachel. No worries, bro. Thank you for having me. And thanks very much to Dr Lachlan Gray and Dr Anna Richards for coming to have a chat to us too uh, and we'll leave you this Sunday and uh, keep enjoying your science listeners